Well, once again, I want to say good morning to everyone and welcome to our assembly, our 1030 assembly. For those of you who are watching online, thanks for tuning in. And for those of you who are here, it's great to see you and it's wonderful to to be together this morning. I pray, and I think that you do as well, that all of us will receive a message of hope this morning from our Lord, who knows exactly what we need in our hearts. And I pray that he will provide that in our time together and that all of us can be encouraged and that we can leave eager to live uh, with purpose each day uh, of this next week as we go out and serve our Lord. So uh, we're just glad that you're here. I'm also very happy to have Zach McCartney, who is here. Most of you out there already know Zach, but there are some of you who don't really know who Zach is, and so I'd just like to just let you know how, how he fits into our lives here. Zach and his wife, Carissa, who's sitting right down there, they both came uh, as college students and were active parts of the Aggies for Christ for several years. Both, both Zach and Carissa were just great, great leaders. Well, after uh, they uh, finished school, they got married, and Zach actually decided that he would like to go into ministry, and so he was part of our leadership academy that we had here, and uh, while he was doing that uh, internship, so to speak, he also studied at Lipscomb University and got his MDiv and uh, finished that, and then last summer, everything shut down, and he just kind of disappeared. And so we thought that we really needed to get Zach and Carissa to come back so that we could say thank you. Um, Zach, you disappeared for a good reason. And that was is that the Hillcrest Church in Abilene, Texas, was needing a university student minister. And they targeted Zach, and they lured him away. And so he moved up there uh, end of July, first part of August with Carissa, and now they're there. And so how's the ministry going there, Zach, first of all? Yeah, I, I just want to start by thanking you guys, this church, because that whole story of the college student to leadership academy into ministry, um, it wouldn't have happened without this church. Uh, I would not be who I am if it wasn't for the Aggies for Christ, if it wasn't for the AM church opening up and letting me preach and letting me sit in meetings and elders meetings and ministers. And everything that I'm doing at Hillcrest was prepared here. And so I'm so thankful for you guys. Um, it means so much that you've brought us back. Uh, Hillcrest U is awesome. That's the name of our college ministry. Uh, the college minister before me had been there for 10 years, and he went to preach at a church in Missouri where his family is. And so it was wonderful to get to step into a program and um, really excited to kind of take some of the things I've learned from the AFC, the student-led ministry, and, and bring it to Abilene. And it's something that we've got a team of people he, there who are excited about it, and we've got a good core of students. And it's, it, even though it's been crazy with the pandemic and all the insanity of the last year, it's, it's been a real blessing for us. Yeah, par probably wasn't the best timing to try to start a college ministry right in the middle of a pandemic. I that's know no different. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was what it was. So yeah. that's, I, I think the Lord has, has done some good stuff. The best week of our ministry was the blizzard week. Uh. So everything shut down. Our students had nothing to do. So we just ate together and sang together. And it was, the Lord definitely has moved in some cool ways in the weirdness. Yeah. Well, Zach, I know that... Uh, 
deep in, the, in your heart and Carissa's heart is just wanting to study deeper. And that has led you to many opportunities to go to Israel and to really be able to understand the culture and the landmarks that are there. Are you still planning to, to uh, take groups over to Israel once the world opens back up again? Yes, absolutely. One of the coolest things about the, the luring process was is I got to negotiate a bit in my contract, and I negotiated in my contract that I get to take a two-week trip to Israel every single year to lead tours. And it's something that the elders there are excited about, and it's something that Chris and I have been excited about. We got to go over there several times, but once with Ray Vanderlyn, he sort of, that was the big study tour for us, and he recommended that I go back to Jerusalem University College, and everything that I've learned, I feel like I'm ready to, to take what I've learned and show and teach people the Bible in context. So just real quick, our first trip is May 17th to the 28th of 2022. So Israel's not yet open. It's a, they're good on the vaccines, but they're, they're just not open yet. So next year we're starting. We're going to fly out of Houston. There's going to be about 5 to 10 miles of walking per day, um, and there's no, like, elevators up ancient sites. So it's there, you have to be a bit mobile. Um, the temperatures are pretty similar to Texas, slightly warmer in, in this time of year, but I think Texans can handle it. Uh, and one of the key things that I think is a good thing is we get back on a Friday, so you have the weekend to flip your nights and days and, and get back to work. So I, I'm really excited. If you can go to the next slide there. Uh, this is a QR code. If, you wanna, if you're interested in maybe coming with us or getting more information, just hold your phone up to that. It's going to take you to a little website that's got, um, you can fill out a contact form with your email, and I'll put you on my list. Um, and so I will send out, we, we can't get final costs until a year out because that's when you book airlines. But we're working with a group called GTI Tours that run Ray Vanderlyn's uh, logistics. And so they're really good at what they do. It might be my first trip, but it's not theirs. They know how to, how to do this thing. So oh, um, if you can just leave that for just a second, I see some people <laughs> making it. But. Well, just add to that, uh, after our service is over, you and Carissa are going to be back there in the gathering area at the end of the Great Hall. And we want to just like to invite everyone to just stop by and say hi and say thank you. And we are just so, so blessed that you have been able to be part of our church life here for so long. And we pray God's blessing on you as you start this new chapter there in Abilene as well. Thank you. So encourage everyone to be part of that. We are in a series of the Psalms of Ascent, as Monty has talked to us about already. And we are going to be looking today at Psalm 133. So you may want to go ahead and get your Bible out. You may want to be looking at it because we're going to be going today just right verse by verse through this psalm. And it is a psalm of unity. And I, and I think that as you've been part of this series, you've, you've heard me say that I think the psalms are in an order, that the early psalms are leaving psalms, that, that express the feelings of those who are starting this long and fairly dangerous journey towards Jerusalem. But as you get closer to Psalm 134, which is the last psalm, you get some arriving psalms. And I feel like this is an arriving psalm. I, I picture it myself as someone who has made this journey and they finally get into the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's full of people who have made this journey 
to celebrate one of the three festivals that were part of the religious calendar of the Jewish people. And so they, they made this journey and they begin to look around and they see so many people that have come and they begin to just be filled with this wonderful, exciting reality of unity. And so this is what Psalm 133 is about, and Zach's going to guide us through it. So, Zach, walk us through this psalm this morning. Thank you, Kelly. And what I love about a short text, which uh, this is a short text, is that we get to really get deep and savor each word and each phrase. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to work through it just kind of line by line and, and see what it can, we can draw out of the text for us. Behold. How good and how pleasant is the dwelling of brothers in unity. Like goodly oil on the head coming down over the beard, even Aaron's beard that comes down over the collar of his robes. Like Hermon's dew that comes down on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained the blessing. Life forevermore. And so like Kelly said, uh, this psalm is a psalm of ascent, and so it was used in a particular way, and that gives us some insight into this very first word, behold. Now, I, I read my Bible, and particularly my Old Testament, quite a lot, and behold comes up over and over and over again. And I sometimes have a temptation to sort of make it this sort of figurative um, exclamation point. It's like, hey, pay attention to what's about to be said. But if you think about it in the context of the Psalms of Ascent, behold, is a, it's a literal request. It's, you've just gotten to Jerusalem. You've been walking with all of these people. Look up. Look around you. Behold, there's all of these different people standing here, and they're dwelling together in unity. It wasn't theoretical. It was a physical reality for the uh, Jews who originally used these texts. I'd like you to picture this psalm in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, more Jews lived outside of Judea than inside Judea. They were in what was called the diaspora. And so a lot of them had forgotten Hebrew. The Bible had been translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, so that Jews could not lose touch with their ancient scriptures. And as the, the culture separated and they were further in distance, there were some cultural practices and even some religious practices. They worshipped the same God, but they just did it sort of differently. But they would still come to Jerusalem, and they would still sing these psalms of ascent. And so think about the relevance of Jesus coming up to Jerusalem and seeing the different Jews from Greece and from Babylon and from all over these places united in Jerusalem, singing how good and how pleasant is the dwelling of brothers in unity. So the next verse is how good and how pleasant. Why both? Why both good and pleasant? I think that the psalmist is trying to draw out a different, a different little context for each of those words. One can imagine having a good root canal. It's performed well, fixes the problem, spares you of further pain. I, it's quite hard to imagine having a pleasant root canal. And some of you are nodding pretty vigorously, so I imagine you've actually had a root canal. Goodness in this verse, describes what ought to be. How good is it when brothers dwell in unity? Amongst the people of God, there ought to be unity. This is something that's been forgotten since the Protestant Reformation. 
We have argued about all sorts of doctrinal positions and worship practices. We've divided over the most minor of details within Scripture because of our variant interpretations, all the while forgetting that unity is a critical desire of our God. Think about that verse that Monty read to us. Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, this week, Holy Week, before he goes to the cross, he prays for us in this room. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus, in this great prayer, prays for us who believe on the testimony of the apostles. That we would be one. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. Do you see what this text is saying? Jesus gave us the strategy to win the world for Christ. Be united with each other and with God. That's the strategy. We seem to be interested in others. Man, if we could just get a dynamic speaker, our church would explode. If we could just dim the lights in the worship room, it would be awesome, our church would explode. If we could just change the worship style, man, then things would really get cooking. If we could just stop getting slandered by Hollywood. If we could just win back academia. If we could win back Washington, then Christianity would win the country. What if we took Jesus' words seriously? That unity with God and with our brothers and sisters is the key for the world to know that Jesus is Lord. Would that change how we lived as Christians? How we treated one another in this room? There are disagreements here. There are disagreements in the church that I went to in Abilene. When you disagree with each other, how do you treat those you disagree with? Younger generation, when you're disagreeing with the older generation about something or with the leadership, how do you treat them? Older generation, when you're disagreeing with the younger generation or with the leadership, how do you treat them? You may be fully convinced in your mind that the Lord will be disgusted if the church doesn't go the direction you believe the scriptures command, but I want to suggest to you a possibility. What if God cares more about how you conduct yourself in a given controversy than what decision is ultimately made? What if, in most cases, God values unity in the church more so than he values the outcome of a given controversy? Instead of saying in our hearts, this church will fail and we're out the door if the church does X or Y, what if we did absolutely everything in our power to understand why our fellow believers value X? Or why? What if we do absolutely everything to show those we disagree with that we are listening to them and trying to understand them? What if we took unity as seriously as we take our own opinions? There are truths worth dividing over. There are truths worth dying for. But that list is pretty small. 1 Corinthians 15 outlines most of it. For everything else, political disputes, worship styles, gender roles, I want to make absolutely sure that I'm fighting for unity. 
fighting to understand my brothers and sisters who disagree with me, fighting to show them the grace that I received at the cross of Christ, even if they aren't showing me the same, and loving them as brothers and sisters even when we come to different positions. Because when we are one, the world will know that Jesus is Lord, and that matters a whole lot more than most of our disagreements. The beautiful thing about unity is that it's not just good. It's not just an ought or a duty. It's also a delight. It's also pleasant. Unity is what ought to be. But when we catch a glimpse of it, when you see a group of people who would otherwise be divided come together as one and stand with each other, it it touches something within you. Something deep. Our world is filled with divisions. That's just stating obvious fact. But when you see in maybe a movie or especially in in real life, people standing together who might otherwise not, it speaks somewhere deep in your soul and it whispers a truth to you that this is the way things ought to be. This is what you were made for. You weren't made for anger and division and hostility. You were made to dwell with each other and dwell in the presence of God. We were made for unity. When we see it, we're enraptured by it. And I got a glimpse of this really recently in our ministry. Um, I had this really original idea when I was setting up a weekly rhythm for Hillcrest U. I I thought that um, a really great idea would be to have a student-led Devo on Thursday night at 9 o'clock. I thought it would be great. I don't know where I got it, but I guess, you know, you guys prepared me well. And, and so we just got a council of students together to, like, plan it and do all that stuff. It was, I mean, y'all, again, y'all have helped me quite a bit. Um, so we, we were doing this Devo, and, and it was wonderful. A couple weeks ago, one of our girls got up. It was her turn to share. And she started her talk by saying, I grew up in the Anglican church. My dad was Greek Orthodox. And... and I have spent the last four years here at ACU singing a cappella and worshiping God and learning so much from you, Church of Christers, about what what God is like. And my relationship with God has grown so much with you. I wanted to just share with you guys the way that I grew up worshiping and some of the things that I've learned from that. And so she handed out these little um, booklets that were folded over, and it it was a little Anglican prayer service, an evening prayer liturgy. And she led us through and explained to us what the purpose of it was. And we got to read it together. And I was touched. I was, emo- I was sitting in the back of the room and I was emotional because I have dreamed of seeing churches come together. I grew up in Austin, Texas, in the public schools in Austin, Texas. I grew up in a secular culture. I loved my Baptists and other people who weren't of the Church of Christ because I was the only practicing Christian in a lot of my classes. Seeing brothers from different denominations come together and learn from each other because we worship the same God, seeing that was such a joy to my heart. It was such a sweet gift for the Lord. And it's something that I long to see more and more. Let's keep reading the psalm. 
It's like goodly oil on the head coming down over the beard, even Aaron's beard that comes down on the collar of his robes, like Hermon's dew that comes down on the mountains of Sion. Next in the psalm, we find two phrases describing what unity is like. And what I absolutely love about these two phrases is that they work on multiple levels. There's this physical imagery that really paints the picture, but then there's this deeper spiritual level that we're going to talk about in just a minute. So let's unpack this physical imagery. We have this goodly oil that's all over Aaron. Now, I don't know about you. Well, I've learned, um, but I, um, when I first see that, I kind of see a big mess. Just this, this oil, it's on his head, and it's coming down over his beard, and it doesn't soak up in the beard. It, it keeps going. You know, he is just drenched in this oil. And the book of Exodus tells us what kind of oil anoints the head of the priest, and it's the good stuff. It's really expensive stuff. It's in Exodus 28. You can check it out. Um, so this is saying that unity is this, this overflowing abundance of the good stuff, but it means even more. And I've gotten to learn a little bit about what it means, because I have left the promised land of College Station and have been cast into the wilderness of West Texas. And in this wilderness, I want to tell you something. It is dry and it is windy. And when I first went there, my skin cracked a lot. My nails started cracking and I got some nosebleeds and I've never had that before. I came back in and it's like water was being poured all over my skin here in College Station with 85% humidity. I missed, it was quite nice. Now, I would like to pick, for you to picture Aaron in the tabernacle, who is in a desert, and he's living outside, and it's windy, and it's dry, and it's hot. You may not want that mess getting all over your clothes, but if you've been out in the wilderness, and your skin is cracked, and you have this oil that's running down, it's like putting that hand lotion on after your hands have felt dry. It's so soothing and good. It's balm. You don't care about the stickiness or about the messiness, and isn't that Kind of like what unity's like. Unity's messy. When you get a bunch of people who disagree with each other, who are united in Christ, it, it's messy. There's cultural differences. There's generational differences. It's going to be weird. You're, there's going to be moments where you have to like sit and be quiet because you're like, I'm not sure about what this guy is saying, but I love him, so you know, whatever. We'll just, we'll just keep going through this one. There's moments of, of tension, but it's worth it. Because the unity, what you gain is so much better that is what unity is like, this overwhelming abundance. But there's another level. If you live outside in the desert and you're hot and sweaty all the time and you're sacrificing these animals as Aaron was, how do you think you smell? Not great. Not great. This unity, these spices that was poured on, it's a fragrant smell, which draws in another layer. Unity, whenever it's practiced, is a fragrant smell to the world. In a world that reeks of tribalism and self-righteousness, unity smells sweet. When we Christians, we brothers and sisters, fight to be unified with one another, we soothe our own souls and we become a sweet smell to the world. Remember what Jesus said, let them be one as we are one, then the world will know that you sent me. How do we smell? How does this church smell? How do we Christians smell to our neighbors? It's an important question. Okay, the next line of this metaphor, I'm taking you to Israel to Mount Hermon, okay? 
Mount Hermon, if you hear Hermon, this is Mount Hermon right here. It is a big old mountain. And as far as it's, it's you see it, it's a snow-capped, snow-covered mountain. It's about 10,000 feet above sea level, but it's super prominent because it's coming up out of what's called the Rift Valley where the Dead Sea is. The Dead Sea's 3,000 feet below sea level, and then this is about 10,000 feet above sea level. So when you're standing on it and you're looking up, this is a big old mountain, Okay. And so this is, there's an important rule that I need to, to learn, and, and I'll teach, if you come to me with Israel, we'll get all into this stuff, it'll be really fun. But in Israel, let me tell you about the weather. I can tell you how much rain you're going to get based on two factors, how far north you are and how high in elevation you are. So the further north you get, the more rain you get. The, further, the higher in elevation, the more rain you get. This is the most northern mountain in Israel. Northernmost point of Israel. It is also the highest elevation in Israel. It gets a lot of water. It gets a lot of rain. It is a luscious, luscious garden. In fact, the Jordan River actually comes out of Mount Hermon. So this right here is a video that I took in January. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. So the water falls down on Mount Hermon and it runs through the rocks and it bursts forth out of the mountain. And this is the rainy season, so this water is just flowing. That is Mount Hermon, okay? So let me show you the mountains of Zion real quick. So this is Jerusalem, so there you're looking at, at Mount Moriah and Mount Zion. So now go to the next one, that's the Mount of Olives, okay? So we're seeing it's a, it's a little bit drier, but now show the next one. So this is a picture of the ridge where Jerusalem's at. Think that gets a lot of rain? No, it's dry. It's dry. And so this imagery, you go from the luscious abundance of Hermon, and it's saying that that dew is going to come on to Mount Zion, and that's what unity is like. Gushing water over the parched mountains of Zion. But it's really interesting what the text does. Because the text has this turn at the end. It says, like Hermans do, that comes on to mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained the blessing, life forevermore. I thought we were talking about unity. Why, why did we move and talk about this blessing of God? What is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is telling us something deeper. And, and, and I love what's going on here, because if we go back and we back up and think about the purposes of these psalms, we have all of these people together. You're beholding people from different languages and cultures singing the Psalms to the same God. And why? Because of what the Lord has done at Mount Zion. Zion is what brings the brothers together. The reason that Jews traveled over great distances was because Zion was the place where heaven and earth met. Zion is where the temple of the Lord was. There, the daily sacrifices were offered for the sin of Israel. At three o'clock and at nine o'clock, the shofar would sound and the lamb would be slain. And that would keep the covenant relationship between God and his people. It means even more to them, though, because there's one more contrast I just want to talk about before we really launch into this. It means more to them because for all of recorded history, there has been a shrine at the base of Mount Hermon. 
There has been a shrine worshiping a god, a pagan god, at the base of Mount Hermon. In David's day, after David died and Solomon, after Solomon died and the temple split in two, Jeroboam set up a statue to Baal at Mount Hermon. If you go there today, there are Roman ruins of four different temples, pagans worshiping the gods at Mount Hermon. And there's a reason for this. Gods in the ancient world worshipped, uh, were, were found in two places, in mountains and in gardens. They were in places of power and abundance. So everything in your mind, if you are a person in the ancient world, would think that the God should be at Mount Hermon. But he's not. The God's at Zion. The Jews are going to this parched mountain singing together, not because of what it is appearing, but because of what the Lord has done. God is not like man. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the desert hills to be the place where heaven and earth met. And because of God's faithfulness to those people and those hills, to the slaves in Egypt that he's called out, we are studying the Psalms of Ascent in College Station, Texas, halfway around the world. God's choice of Zion is what brought the people together. But we can see this psalm just a little bit more clearly than they. Because we understand the last line. Something that I don't think they did. For there, in Mount Zion, the Lord ordained the blessing, life forevermore. For the Jewish people of Jesus' day, there was no consensus on the resurrection of the dead. Life forevermore was a hint. It was a shadow. It was a hope. When they sang this psalm and praised God for Zion and the blessings, they thought of the temple and God's dwelling with Israel. They thought of those temple sacrifices. They thought of the culture and the custom and, and God's faithfulness throughout history. They thought about that shofar at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. and the lamb slain to maintain the covenant relationship with God. They thought of the visible reminders of God's faithfulness that happened on Mount Zion. The people of God of Jesus' day could rejoice in Zion because the Lord made a way. He made a way for their sin to be atoned for. There, God made it possible for God and people to dwell together. They saw that, but we see more because we know what they didn't. We know that at 9 a.m. on Good Friday, the hands that held the heavens were stretched out over wood and nailed in. We know that at 3 p.m. on that same day, the voice that called the stars by name gave up his spirit. We know that when he did, the curtain of that temple tore in two from top to bottom, and heaven rejoiced through tears for the presence of God could finally be restored to mankind. Life forevermore was made possible because of what the Lord did on Zion's parched hills. We see that in this psalm. Would you like to know the secret of unity? Fix your eyes on what the Lord has done. Recognize that you and I have shattered this world with what we have done and what we failed to do. That it's not conservatives or progressives, big tech or the corporations. It's not Hollywood or the academics that are dividing our world or the church. It's us. We are doing it. And because of us, the sinless son of heaven had to die. 
but also because of us, he was glad to. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the secret of unity. You are a fallen sinner. You are more sinful than you care to admit, but the worst version of you, not the best, is the version Christ had in his mind when he went to that cross. You are more loved and accepted than you've ever dreamed of. The creator of the universe knows your name. This paradox, this deep mystery is the basis by which we build our unity. We do not exalt our own opinions because we know that we're sinners and we're deceived as much as we deceive others. But at the same time, we're bound together by the overwhelmingly abundant grace of God. What petty trifle is a worship style in light of the mercy of God? What political action can be taken that strips us of this great love? Brothers and sisters, what unites us is the king of heaven. Do not be divided by the idols of this world. Bask in the mystery and the beauty of the gospel and be united. Do so now as we stand and as we sing.